One of the things that's very unique about this epistle is that there is a summary of the gospel in each chapter. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And then in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And then we have chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When the kindness of God our Savior toward man appeared. When did it appear? Remember? Mm -hmm. Chapter 1, verse 3, in due time. Galatians 4, 4, at the right time. At the fullness of time. When the kindness and the love of God our Savior, just a quick connection for you. God our Savior in verse 4 connects over to chapter 2 and verse 10. Adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, which connects down to chapter 2 and verse 13. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then it connects to chapter 3 and verse 6. Jesus Christ, our Savior. We can speak of God the Father as our Savior, God the Holy Spirit as our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. Paul, uh, because the Holy Spirit always chooses to hide himself, uh, usually is not spoken of in direct sense like that, but we hear, here we have God referring to the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When the kindness and the love, well, wait a minute, down in verse 11, it's the grace of God. What is the grace of God? It's kindness and love. Paul's actually defining his own terms. The grace of God is expressed through the kindness and the love of God. When the kindness of God and the love of God, our Savior, toward men appeared. Here it says toward man. Man in the singular is a reference to what? Mankind. Look up at verse 2. All men. See that? Showing humility to all men. Notice over in chapter 2 and verse 11, the grace of God brings salvation has appeared to all men. We call it the unconditional work of Christ on the cross. Unconditional election, if you will. That drives the Calvinists crazy. What does it mean? Every person was covered in the work of Christ on the cross. How do we know that? Stop and think about this. The proof that the work of Christ covered every member of the human race is, John 3, 16 through 19 tells us no one goes to hell for their sin. No one goes to hell for their sins. Why? Because the sins are paid. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Their sins, if you go to 2 Corinthians 5, 19, what does it tell us? Not imputing their sins to them. Why did God not impute sins to members of the human race? Because all of them were imputed to Christ. So people go to hell not because the sins of their sins, they go to hell because they have not believed in the only begotten Son of God. Not by works of righteousness, he moves on in verse 5. The kindness and the love of God toward man is not by works of righteousness that we have done. Goes back, of course, to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 9. There is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. There is nothing we can do to add to our salvation. 
not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. According to his mercy, down in chapter 2 and verse 11, it's the grace of God. Here it's the mercy of God. What is the difference? Well, the difference is God's grace supplies us everything that we don't deserve. God's mercy withholds from us everything that we deserve. So in the grace of God, we have all of the provisions of all of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. In the mercy of God, we have the removal of all condemnation. There is, therefore, Romans 8, 1, no condemnation to those who are in Christ's life. All of that condemnation was moved through the mercy of God. If God dealt with any of us today without mercy, we would be a smoking sinner on the floor. Mercy withholds what we deserve. He saved us, this reference, of course, to eternal salvation, through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And the word washing here is the same one that Jesus used in John 13, 10, when he said to Peter, he who is bathed only needs to wash his feet. It's the word luo. It equates to the Old Testament idea of the labor of cleansing. It's also the word that Paul uses in Ephesians 5.26, that Jesus sanctified us by the washing of water by the word. It's the idea of the bath of salvation. Here he calls it the washing of regeneration or the washing of the new birth and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. This does not mean that the Holy Spirit is renewed to us. It means that the Holy Spirit makes us new. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. So at the moment of salvation, God withheld from us all that we deserve because of his kindness and love. And he poured out on us the cleansing of the new birth and the new creation of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6 says, he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. I just like to emphasize the idea of pouring out takes us back, of course, to Pentecost. At Pentecost, it was a good thing with us. It's personal and individual at the moment of salvation but I stress the word abundantly. I know it doesn't seem like it. I know there are times that we doubt it. I know there are times when we're going through adversity and difficulty that we would deny it, but that word abundant means that you have all the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit that you will ever need. It's everything you're ever going to need, provided by the Spirit to the believer in this place in time. Why is all of this given to us? Verse 7, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And now he looks at the big picture. And of course, we've talked about inheritance before. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 1, verses 4 and 5. An inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away. Paul talks about it in Galatians 3, 20, 29 and 4, 7, where he reminds us that because we're children, we're heirs. Every child of God is an heir of God. Every child of God has an eternal inheritance. Now that inheritance can be enhanced. You can add to it by eternal reward. And Paul picks this idea up in Romans 8 and verse 17. When he says heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ. The joint heirs with Christ has to do with the addition. Spiritual eternal reward. Grounds and everything that we've studied so many times. The hope of eternal life. The hope of eternal life, and every time we see hope, there's two things we should think about. Number one, hope is an absolute certainty based on the infallible promises of God. Hope makes not ashamed. Why? Because the one who promised is faithful. The second thing hope should remind us is it is, I hate to use this analogy, it's rather crude, it's the carrot on the stick in front of the donkey. Hope leads onward. Hope is future, as Paul says in Romans 8, a hope that is seen is not hope. We don't hope for what we have. 
We hope for what we don't have. And if we are living in hope, and I talk about the fact that hope is a living hope, it's a purifying hope, it's a blessed hope, it should keep on constantly urging us and moving us forward, the hope of eternal life.